That was Sheer Baboker Baboker, the song of every morning. It is one of my favorite Israeli rock songs. The composer is the great and legendary Shlomo Artsy. The chorus. Pitom kamadam baboker. Suddenly a man wakes up and feels that he is a people. And to all that he meets on his way, he says shalom. Now, I cannot say that the Jews suddenly woke up one morning and decided that they, we, were a people. But I will say that the man who gets the most credit for that awakening, that sense that we are a nation, was Theodore Herzl. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, and we are recording this on Thursday, January 5th, 20. So that, my friends, is Zionism 101. The dream of rebuilding the Jewish people through a connection and a reconnection to the Jewish land. But somewhere along the line, that very word Zionism, that idea that generations of Jews held sacred, it became problematic. It's now uttered in whispers that were once upon a time reserved for the word Jewish itself. The political situation in Israel over the years, the moral challenges of the occupation since 1967, the settlements, the ethical issues surrounding how a Jewish state uses power, all of these elements have conspired to create a situation where in many Jews talking about Israel would borrow the Facebook way of putting it relationship, it's complicated. Which brings me to our guest for today, my friend and teacher, Gil Troy. Gil is many things which you will learn about, but most prominently, he is a professor of history at McGill University. He earned his undergraduate degree and he earned his doctorate from Harvard University, where he also taught. Gil lives in Jerusalem. We've had some wonderful meals together. And I have watched him develop as a scholar, as a public intellectual, as the author of nine books. He writes a column for the Jerusalem Post, a column which he calls Center Field. We'll talk more about that later. But for our purposes today, Gil is the author and editor of several wonderful I would say foundational books on Israel and Zionism. And most recently and most impressively, a collection of Theodore Herzl's writings in a beautiful three-volume set published by Koren as part of its imprint, The Library of the Jewish People. This should have been on everyone's Hanukkah list. So we're going to be talking about that work with Gil and about other things as well. And we'll be right back.
Once again, from the Religion News Service, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And our guest is Gil Troy, and he's going to introduce us to perhaps the most heroic Jew in all of modern Jewish history. That's Theodore Herzl. Hey, Gil, how are you? Good to see you. Always great to sit with you. I prefer in person in our favorite cafe on Emek Rafaim, but this will have to do electronically. It'll have to do, but we'll we'll always have next summer. Hey, Gil, tell us first about the project, This the Library of the Jewish People. This sounds very ambitious. Can you fill us in? What's in it? What What's part of it? Yes, this very humbly named project, the Library of the Jewish People, is a spinoff from Corn Publishers, which does a beautiful job of producing books. And Matthew Miller, the publisher, just loves books. And he understands that the written word, of course, is important, but it also has to be contained in a majestic kind of uh, setting and structure. And there's something called the Library of, of America, which for the last 20 years or so has been churning out the great works of American theater, American literature, American history, Thomas Jefferson, Betty Friedan, uh, Philip Roth, and in, again, beautifully produced volumes. And Matthew Miller says, we are the people of the book. And we actually have a problem in the modern world of we are the most sophisticated, most PhD, credentialed, MSW, MD uh, generation of Jews, and yet many of us are ignorant. So let's have the library of the Jewish people. And he wants to, over the next 20, 30 years, there's going to be a massive project, churn out the great books of the Jewish people. We're lucky. I'm lucky. I was honored in that the first three volumes of this massive project are the Zionist writings of Theodor Herzl. And last summer, I had to do a deep dive into the diaries, the letters, the articles, the plays, and the novels and books about Zionism that Theodor Herzl wrote. And what's amazing is that he was only actor for 11 years as a Zionist, from his aha moment in the 1890s, 1894-95, and we'll get to that, to his uh, unfortunate early death at the age of 44 in 1904. And so I ended up writing one general introduction to the series to explain who Theodor Herzl is to the next generation. And then having sympathy for our readers, because it's three 900-page volumes, I wrote 11 introductions to each of the years that he was active. Now, we know we've just passed a new year that the difference between December 31st and January 1st or Erev Rosh Hashanah and Rosh Hashanah is ultimately symbolic. But year by year, you can find different themes emerging. One year, he writes Der Judenstadt, the Jewish state. The next year, he markets it. The next year, 1897, he launches the Zionist Congress. And through that year-by-year approach, we get a kind of more textual sense of this person who, as you indeed say, may be the most influential Jew in the last uh, 150 years. It's an amazing story. We're going to unpack it further. But I want to just talk personally for a moment about you. We've known each other I'm trying to figure out when we first met. I, it it could be 30 years, but tell me what first drew you to Zionism and Israel? What's your Zionist story? So first, our relationship started as a literary relationship. I read your amazing book about Bar Mitzvah so many years ago before we before I had the, pr- the privilege and honor of getting to know you. Uh, and, and it's actually been one of the exciting things about kind of plunging into the Jewish world. All these names on books have now become friends uh, and mentors and teachers. Uh, so I, you know, I, you know, it's funny, there's a, a, a beautiful expression in the Mizrahi world of born Zionist. And I was born Zionist. I'm the product of an intermarriage. My father was a Beitari, which was a right-wing Zionist. My mother was on the first Habonim year in Israel program, which was left-wing Zionism. Uh, I am from Young Judea, which is a middle-of-the-road kind of approach. I married a woman from Hashemar Seir, which is left-wing Zionism. Her parents were also a mixed marriage of a centrist Zionist and a left-wing Zionist. But we're all united, and this is the Herzl idea, by the fundamental understanding that the Jews are a people, not just a religion. I call it the Oreo cookie, the cookie part and the cream part, that interaction that intertwining of people and religion. Two, that we have particular rights to a homeland, our homeland. Doesn't preclude others from having rights to that homeland. We know I grew up in New York, that Manhattan was Native American territory, then purchased by the Dutch and then ultimately controlled by the United States of America. So land can sometimes be contested or land can sometimes be shared. So A, we are a people. B, we have ties to particular homeland. And C, the rights to establish a state on that homeland. And that Zionist trifecta, or Trinity, if you will, is what ultimately moved Theodor Herzl from being a passive Jew to an active Jew. 
from someone on the sidelines of history to being a mover and shaker in history. And from someone who was desperately trying to assimilate, desperately trying to be accepted, desperately trying to belong to understanding, first I have to be home and then I can belong. And it's not just about building a state, it's about building an identity. And that's the two sides of Zionism, state building and identity building. A state reclamation project and an identity reclamation project. And that's been my Zionist journey. We're going to circle back to Herzl, of course. You know, I've read all of your books and oh your writings before this have not only been about Israel and Zionism, but there's another Gil Troy that we really have to encounter here. And that is your fascination with American political figures, especially presidents. I think you're probably one of the great presidential historians of America. So you've written about the Clintons. You've written about different periods in American history and culture. Who have you admired the most of those American political figures? First, I'll take a step back and thank you for your kind words. You're going to start getting the monthly check from my dad for being so nice to me. Uh, but indeed, my American identity and my Zionist identity reinforce one another because I think these are two of the greatest stories in the modern world today. The American notion that we can have people coming from all kinds of different corners of the world, and yet we have fundamental ideas and ideals that unite us. And that we are not just simply a democracy, but a democracy with a mission is very parallel and overlapping with the Zionist idea that we are also a democracy with a mission. I spent many years in Canada and I love my Canadian friends, but Canada is about peace, order and good government. It's not about moving the needle. It's not about changing the world. America has always been catalytic and Israel, Zionism, Judaism has always been catalytic, changing the world, improving the world, using what I call liberal nationalism. And my nationalism has a first name liberal and a middle name, democratic, liberal democratic nationalism, to unite people, to build ourselves up, but not to build walls, but to extend our wings and soar and do good for the world. And so my journey as an American presidential historian has been trying to find those leaders who sing that song of America. And what I'm particularly interested in always is the intersection between politics and culture. So when I write about Ronald Reagan, I don't just write about Ronald Reagan and his leadership from the White House, but I talk about Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. When I talk about Bill Clinton, I talk about Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And when you ask me who I most admire, I have a dodge for that, which is who would I most want to have a cocktail with or dinner with? Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was this larger than life president. Uh, his daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth said, my father had to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. How's that for group therapy? But um, he, you know, and, and he was like this, this force of nature. And he was a writer and he was a cowboy and he was a pugilist, which is a fancy word for boxer. And he was a police commissioner. He was a vice president and he led the charge up San Juan Hill. Although we always point out that he had a very high voice and he went, charge, not charge, which helps us play with um, some of the heavy-handed masculine identity issues that he had he definitely had um, and he was also a fascinating president so he would be my my choice for uh, for someone who was really both admirable but also fascinating some people said that after you sat with him you had to wring his personality out of your clothes that's how intense he was you know the political personality that you wrote about and it was really the first literary encounter that I had with you on a Jewish topic or Jewish adjacent topic was the significant political biography that you wrote of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, Pat Moynihan served as UN ambassador. He served as senator from New York. He was a bon vivant, a complex character whom I greatly admired. Why did you choose to write about Moynihan? And are there lessons that we can be drawing from his life and career? Most of the American history books I've written, and frankly, most of the Zionist books I've written, have been big, broad, and sweeping. And as an American political historian, I always wanted to find a moment, a dramatic moment, a great trial, a defining speech, a something that was a game changer. And I'm old enough to remember that awful moment in 1975 when the United Nations, the vehicle that was supposed to be the guarantor of freedom, a guarantor of reasonableness, the guarantor of rights and of democratic ideals throughout the world 
singled out one form of nationalism in the forum of nationalisms, the United Nations, Zionism, and said it was, what's the ugliest term we can use? It's racism. And it's really traumatic for many of us who believed in the UN. And there was one tall Irish American who never really had that deep a tie to Israel because he said as an academic, he never got one of those fun free trips. And so he never quite got the Israel thing who said, this is unacceptable. And he stood up in the well in the UN and he fought not just for Israel, not just for the Jewish people, not just for America, but for democracy and decency. And I wrote the book Moynihan's Moment to capture that moment. I was actually shocked that there weren't 10 books about written about that. But I also did it, I'll be very honest. I was looking for a liberal, democratic, non-Jewish voice who was pro-Zionist. Because when I wrote this, and this is back in 2010 that I started writing the project, the book came out in uh, the end of 2012, 20, the beginning of 2013. Even then, what you said at the beginning, the hatred against Zionism, the hatred against the Jewish people and the zeal with which people were focusing on any imperfections in Israel to sort of demonize all of the Zionist project, all of Israel and all of the Jewish people was so intense. And I grew up in a world where the few anti-Zionists in America lived on the right. And to start emerging in an America where the loudest anti-Zionists were on the left was very, very disturbing to me. And I wanted to bring out this character, this role model, who was very harsh in his criticisms of Ronald Reagan, who was deeply devoted to the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt's vision of making sure that every single human being in America and in the world wasn't the forgotten man or woman, wasn't neglected, who was very much critical of many things that went on in the Republican side of the aisle, but also understood sometimes in foreign policy, we work together. And when it came to defending Israel and the Jewish people, understood and could smell the totalitarianism in hijacking a term like racism and applying it to Zionism. And he said, if we use words like that, racism, to mean anybody whom we dislike, any countries we dislike, then the terms, the entire human rights vocabulary will lose their meaning and we will all be diminished. And he said that in 1975. And it's so true today in 2023. Pat Moynihan was a prophet. And what's fascinating about him, and I learned this from your book, and I, I've talked about this to people, is that Moynihan grew up in Hell's Kitchen, tough, working class, Irish Catholic, Catholic school kid, and as you've alluded to, was not someone who loved the Jews. As a matter of fact, I think it's fair to say that the reaction that he got from the American Jewish and world Jewish community after he stood up at the UN probably helped convert him, if not to philo-Semitism, then at least a real affection for the Jewish community. What struck me about what you wrote about Moynihan was that his standing up at the UN was perhaps less of a standing up for the Jewish state and Zionism as it was, and this is very important, a standing up for truth. He just despised that this was a lie. And that's a really big deal, isn't it, Gil? Absolutely. He called it the big red lie. And of course, he was talking about the big lie from the Nazi times. But by calling it the red lie, he was pointing out that it was communist inspired. And it was this sick alliance between the harshest Palestinian and Arab rejectionists rejecting the very right of the Jewish people to be a people, let alone have a state. And the communists who were manipulating, who were trying to embarrass America by going after America's good friend, Israel. And indeed, it was a fight for truth. It was a fight for human rights. It was a fight for justice. And it was a fight against totalitarianism. He could smell, as I said earlier, the totalitarianism. And as someone who had lived through World War II, who had seen the ugliness, both of the Nazi regime and the communist regime, he couldn't stand by. And of course, it's a, such an important story because... That fight continues. All these lies about Israel, settler colonialism and apartheid and imperialism, you want to criticize Israeli policy, fine, but the need to delegitimize is a reflection of totalitarianism. The need to go down the anti-Semitic alley is a reflection of totalitarianism. And much of the conversation today is about clashing totalitarianisms and lost in it is our democracy. And so it's so very important that we keep that line. And what's so beautiful about the story is he wasn't doing it for votes. He wasn't doing it to make friends. 
He was doing it, as you said, for truth and justice. And as we used to say about Superman, the American way. You know, there's another book of yours that I hope you're getting good royalties on this because I've given this book as a gift to any number of people ever since it came out. You rewrote Arthur Hertzberg's classic volume, The Zionist Idea. Now, that book appears in every synagogue library, and if you're a Jew of a certain age, you have that book on your shelf. And I have to tell you something. At my Reform Summer Camp, summer 1969, summer 1970, they taught us passages from that book. We had a Zionist education. Okay, so comes along Gil Troy, and you update the book, and what do you do? You give it a new title, you rename it, and instead of the Zionist idea, you gave it an upgrade, and you added an S to the word idea, and you gave the book the new title, The Zionist Ideas. Now, why did you need to do this? What did you learn about this in the process? So first two sidebars before I get to your question. One is, we always talk and discover that we're brothers in so many ways. I had my first encounter with a Zionist idea in my summer camp, Camp Tel Yehuda. And it was a similar kind of thing. If it was the Zionist Bible, and we didn't read it from cover to cover. You said you read parts. You just read parts. But those are the parts that told us the Zionist story. And secondly, when I was putting together the book and I was talking about religious Zionism, I broke the mold and I put reform Jews, rabbis, like the late Dick Hirsch, in the religious Zionist part of the book. I didn't put him in... And and it was very important for me to say that religious Zionists aren't just from the Orthodox world. They're from the conservative world. They're from the reform world if their Zionism is informed by their belief in God and their belief in the Jewish people and the belief in the Holy Land of Israel, which for people like uh, the late Dick Hirsch, it certainly was, and his son Amiel Hirsch and people like you continue that. And so it's very important to acknowledge that reform Zionism is a phenomenon and it's a part of religious Zionism. I would never have had the nerve to update that book because as I said to me, it was the Bible. But when I was asked by another reform rabbi, uh, Barry Schwartz, who's the editor, of the, uh, the publisher of the Jewish Publication Society, to update this book, I said, what we have to do is add an S from the Zionist idea. We are a people, ties to a particular homeland, rights to establish a state on that homeland, to open up the story, bring in all these different voices to show we still debate what that Jewish state should look like, what Zionism truly means, but we do it within Abraham's tent. We're open on all four sides, but we have clear delineations, clear boundaries. And I added, I brought in women's voices, which hadn't been in Hertzberg's original, which was really kind of an oversight. How do you not have Henrietta Zold and Golda Meir and the poetess Rachel? That's not affirmative action. That's just basic historical accuracy. I added Mizrahi voices. I added gay voices. I added Ethiopian voices. I wanted it to be the panoply of voices you can hear in Jerusalem today and throughout the entire Jewish world. And so Hertzberg had 34 voices at a time when you could run three, four, five thousand word manifestos. I had to cut, 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 because I don't know if you got the memo, but most students these days have much shorter attention spans, as do we. What were we talking about? Sorry, what what were we talking about? Yeah, (laughs) I got it. (laughs) So we had to cut, 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 and add, add, add. And we ended up with a book that was smaller than Hertzberg's but had 168 different voices in a real symphony of Zionist thought, all united by the notion of peoplehood and statehood and love of land, but all going in slightly different directions. And isn't that what you really need in a democratic conversation, lowercase d? You know, what's amazing about your book is this. When people say to me that they're anti-Zionist, they don't believe in Zionism, I want to hand them your book, which, by the way, I've done, and I've said... I have no investment in you being a Zionist. I don't have this proprietary relationship with your Jewish soul. But to be intellectually honest, all I'm going to ask you to do is to go through this book as you would go through a catalog. There's something in here that will speak to your Jewish soul. Has the book worked that way for people? Has it reclaimed people who might have thought they were not Zionist? I'm I, I'm humbled and happy to say that indeed it has. I've gotten many letters and emails um, and, and had encounters with people on the street who said, you know, I'd given up on Zionism. I'd given up on the conversation. They were so fed up with the headlines of the moment. They were so fed up with Bibi or Shmibi or whoever it was they didn't like 
that they forgot the basics. And that was really the intention of the book. The intention of the book was to invite people back to the basics, the fundamentals, while also challenging them, invite, inviting them to think about the future and to feel a part of it. When you add an S, my friend Zohar Raviv, who's the education director of Birthright, says, you're adding a question mark. And all too often we speak about Zionism with exclamation points. You must do this. You must think this. You must feel that. No. Join the conversation. And it's funny, I often say to people who are in the Zionist tent, I said, if you read this entire book and you agree with everybody, then you haven't read the book. And the beauty of the conversation is to say, yes, we can agree to disagree. We like to say that these days, but can't we also agree to agree? Let's not forget the fundamentals that unite us as well as some of the issues that divide us lovingly and thoughtfully. Let us agree to agree. I love that. We'll be right back. And we're back with Gil Troy. Gil, I don't have to tell you this. Theodore Herzl, the mythic founder of political Zionism, and so much of his story is, in fact, shrouded in a story that we tell ourselves. As a matter of fact, what's amazing to me is I recently saw Tom Stoppard's latest play, Leopoldstadt, about assimilated Jews in Central Europe, and Herzl, as it were, makes a guest appearance invisibly in the first scene. Tell us about Herzl's early life. What was he like? What was he about as a kid? What kind of Jew was he? What, what, what do we learn about him? Theodor Herzl was born in a very significant uh, year for American history as well as Jewish history, 1860. So it's easy for me to remember as an American historian, the start of the Civil War. But in 1860, when he's born in Budapest, in the Hungarian, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what's happening in the Jewish world? The Jews have been stuck in the ghetto for centuries. And finally, finally, the voice of enlightenment, the voice of emancipation saying, come out, come out wherever you are. And some Jews, a small percentage, come out and they join Western society. His parents had already done that and they had done and they had succeeded. And so he grows up with a dual identity, a dual identity that we as American Jews can absolutely understand. That understanding that, yes, you, he probably had a bar mitzvah. Yes, he had a grandfather who was... Uh, somewhat religious and was very uh, affected by, by certain Zionist rabbis. But fundamentally, he had the opportunity to be, and this is the sexist language of the time, a man on the street. You might be a Jew at home, but you want to be a man on the street. And he, in, when, when he's 18 years old, his sister dies tragically. And within a week, he and his parents moved to Vienna. Imagine how traumatic that is. You only, not only lose your sister, but you lose all your memories in, in the space of a couple of days. And in Vienna, he goes to the university he wants to be a lawyer, but his real passion is being a playwright. And understanding Theodor Herzl, who ultimately spends most of his life as a journalist, as both lawyer and playwright are two keys to Theodor Herzl, because he's very much the diplomat, very much the statesman, very much the mover and shaker as a political actor, but he also is the showman. And he figures out how to tell the... And there were many other Zionists. The Zionist story goes back to Abraham and Sarah. The 19th century Zionist story includes people like, I don't have to tell you, you're so learned, Moses Hess and, um, and, and Leon Pinsker and so many others. But what was Herzl's real gift? First of all, his look, that image. He's the first beautiful Jew. He's the first Jew with pride. He's the first Jew who says to the Eastern European Jews, look, we can look like them, we can act like them, but we're not going to be like them. But second, as a showman, he reduces all the complexities of the Jewish emergence from the ghetto, the enlightenment, the emancipation, the disappointment of anti-Semitism into a three-act play. Act one, I, like Captain Alfred Dreyfus and so many others, wanted to assimilate. Act two, we encountered anti-Semitism. Alfred Dreyfus is framed as a Jew 
in France and the Parisian crowds don't yell down with that individual, down with that traitor. They yell down with the Juif, down with the Jews. So act two is we've been traumatized. Thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Act three, we need a homeland. We are a people. We have the rights to a particular homeland. And by having a state, by returning to ourselves, he said, by the way, and it's very important because he's often misunderstood in this way. He said, even before we return to our state, we will return to our Jewishness. He understood that Zionism, as I said earlier, is a journey of identity and not just of building a state, but also of coming home within yourself. You know, I once mused, and I recently spoke about this, that quite often in our lives, someone enters our lives and completely sets us on a direction that we could not have anticipated. And I have said to myself and others playfully that it's possible that the real founder of political Zionism was not Herzl, but was in fact the editor at the newspaper that sent him to Paris to cover the Dreyfus trial. And that person's name has been almost completely lost to history. If it wasn't for that editorial assignment, and as I recall, uh, at that point, Herzl was either the, was he the drama critic or was he the food critic? For he, that he newspaper. was more the drama critic, and he was also Vienna. writing these things called feuilletons, these these short little what my mother would have called meislach, short little stories that tell a moment, that capture a moment. That was his great skill as a journalist. Uh, but indeed, he is there in, in in Paris. One of the fascinating things that people discover when they read the three volume set is that even before the Dreyfus trial begins, coincidentally, he's working on a play called The New Ghetto, and that New Ghetto play, which is now in a good English translation, thanks to this uh, book project, The Library of the Jewish People. In that play, during during the writing of the three weeks that he's writing the play, and he's writing it to sort of exercise himself of all the Jewish stuff in his head. He's tired of feeling inadequate because he's being attacked as a Jew. He's tired of the Judenfraga, the Jewish question. But it's a play of despair. There's not one positive Jewish character in the play. And in fact... A more successful playwright, because Herzl never really su- succeeded as a playwright, and that also helped us, uh, helped him become a Zionist, I think, his, his frustration as a playwright. A fellow playwright, who also was a novelist in 1909, Arthur Schnitzler, would write in his novel, I never really encountered an anti-Semite except for one Zionist leader I knew. And he's talking about Herzl, because of all the negative stereotypes in that play. So what happens? In the middle of writing this, the Dreyfus affair happens. In the middle of this, he sees the c- crowds in Paris denouncing the Juif. And then, at the edge of despair, he turns to hope. And the great gift that Theodor Herzl gave the Jewish people was after centuries of leaps of faith, which are still so important, he gave us a leap of hope. And what is a leap of hope? A leap of hope means tomorrow will be better than today, and it's upon you and me and us to roll up our sleeves and make it better. And that leap of hope is something that we're missing in the Jewish world today. And that leap of hope, by the way, is something we're missing in America today. And Theodor Herzl writes very powerfully about America and about his faith in America, his hopes for America. And one of the things I want my fellow Americans to understand is that you cannot have a democracy of despair. You have to have a democracy, a liberal nationalist democracy of hope. What surprised you when you were putting together these volumes? Did you encounter anything in Herzl's writings that you had never seen before that you had never considered before. Absolutely. Day to day, it was a delight. Day to day, there were all kinds of surprises. First of all, he's a lunatic. You can't be Theodor Herzl. You can't move the world without having the zeal in your eyes. And he's a fanatic and he has very problematic relationships with his mother and with his kids, but a beautiful relationship with his parents. Uh, he's a tinkerer. He wakes up every morning thinking, what, what idea can I add to my sketchbook, and I and, and I compare his diaries to kind of like the the political science equivalent of an Arthur of an artist sketchbook, and and he's constantly thinking, how do I improve? How do I move? He has fantastic, hilarious, acerbic attacks on all kinds of Jewish leaders, which if we listed them would sound very much like attacks you and I might make on some of our fellow Jewish leaders from today about their cowardice, about their materialism, about their assimilationism, about their rigidity, about their hyper orthodoxy. It's amazing, but most profound. I grew up on the myth that 
he died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 44 with a, you know, brokenhearted over the Uganda plan and over how hard it was to launch the Zionist movement. From the time he's in his mid-30s, he's struggling with death. Mm. He's feeling it. And by the way, that gives him the urgency. And reading this, uh, we're of a certain age, so I think you'll you'll relate to this. I went to a, my bookshelf and I took off one of those took out one of those many books that we bought in the seventies when we were younger and never quite read by Ernest Becker called Denial of Death. We all had it on our bookshelves, but I opened it up and he talks about this uh, anthropologist from his deathbed. Ernest Becker talks about what is the desire to have a great character, and what is the desire to achieve, and to write books as you do, and to have podcasts as you do, and to make a statement. It's to deny death. And it helped me understand Theodor Herzl's urgency. It helped me understand what Theodor Herzl was doing. He was moving the needle. He was making his mark. And he died at the age of 44, having made his mark. He had so many personal obstacles, so many inner demons. We are quite blessed, Gil, aren't we, to live in a time where there's such a heightened consciousness about mental health and about mental health struggles. Can you say a little bit about that? His sister, as I said, his beloved only sister died when he's 18 of uh, disease. Within two, three weeks, she gets sick and, and she's dead. His best friend committed suicide. He said he had, as I said, a very problematic relationship with his wife, so much so that he actually went to his very wealthy father-in-law, whose money he had no problem running through, uh, to try to consider maybe having a divorce before their first child was born. And then to jump to the tragic end of the story, he not only dies at the age of 44, his wife dies a few years later, his daughter dies of a morphine overdose in Paris, his son Hans, and her, his daughter was Pauline, named after his beloved sister, his son Hans commits suicide a week later, and then the third daughter, the third child, the, 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 the daughter Trudy, dies in Theresienstadt, in Charitzen, in the concentration camps at the hands of the Nazis. My ultra-Orthodox friends like to attack Herzl by saying he had no Jewish grandchildren. It's true, because he had no children who were lucky enough to raise a family and have uh, any grandchildren at all. So it's not an attack on him. It's actually a sad thing. So indeed... And he struggles with depression. He flirts with suicide. So you do see that this is someone who is very much a tortured character. And had he had both a more loving, immediate family beyond his parents, and indeed the kind of mental health support that uh, so many people these days are able to avail themselves of, uh, he might have had a very different journey and his kids might have had a much happier ending. What do you think would surprise Herzl the most about Israel today? What would give him the most joy? What would produce within him the most sadness? The con worked. I pulled it off. Think about it. It's 1897. He pulls together a motley group of 208 Jews in Basel. He actually wants to have it in Munich, but he figures out a way to make the ultra-Orthodox and the super-reform rabbis agree on something. They both hate him and Zionism, and so he moves from Munich to Basel. He tells everybody, you have to dress in formal tie and tails. And the women, there are women there too, it's very important to emphasize, in proper gowns. Because we are the Jewish people and we are representing the dignity of the Jewish people. And off of that, this playwright and lawyer leverages that meeting, that three-day conference in Basel, and we just celebrated the 125th anniversary of that moment. He leverages that into meeting with czars and sultans and kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers. That's a clever guy. And he says, he writes in his diary famously, oh, no one's going to believe me. And I can't even go public with this, that 50 years from now we'll have established a Jewish state. And indeed, 50 years later, the United Nations on November 29th, 1947, affirmed the right and the need of the Jewish people for a Jewish state. And 51 years later, there was a Jewish state. So the, I think he just walk around Jerusalem and Herzliya and Rishon LeZion and up and down the country as we should, amazed appreciative of all the great things. Would he be a little disappointed by the current government? Well, you know, he was very wary of having too many rabbis in government. He was very wary of uh, the potential for nationalism to turn ugly and bigoted and reactionary because he saw it happening in Europe in the late 1800s. But what's so fascinating about Herzl 
is I just read Bibi Netanyahu's memoir, and he talks about Herzl as his ideal Zionist in many ways. And I recall that just a few years ago, when there were massive protests in Tel Aviv against the same Bibi Netanyahu, the cottage cheese protests, the tent protests for the cheaper rent in Tel Aviv, they used the Herzl image. Now, does that mean that Herzl's image is so meaningless as to just be so elastic that anybody can use it? No. It's an important message for us as Jews, for us who might be frustrated Zionists, and for Americans today. We use these founders to remind us of all that which unites us, even when we disagree politically. And so Bibi Netanyahu and the Kaddish protesters agree that the Jews are a people, have rights to a particular homeland, and the rights to establish a state on that homeland. Bibi and the Kaddish protesters both served in the army. Bibi and the Kaddish protesters both have a sense that we do have enemies from without. Bibi and the Kaddish protesters all stop and stand at attention on Memorial Day and on Holocaust Memorial, Memorial Day. Bibi and the Kaddish protesters and all those of us in between will dance and sing our hearts out on April 26th when we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel. And I want all of us and all your good listeners on that day also to wake up and have ice cream for breakfast because I want us all to taste a little bit of the sweetness of Israel, whatever critiques and whatever frustrations we might have. I just want to rewind a second because I'm sure some of our listeners need to know more about this. The Cottage Cheese protests, can you tell us what that was again? Yeah, so uh, a few years ago in Tel Aviv, some young women who were frustrated by the incredibly high rents they were being forced to pay, said, we've had enough. And they created a tent city on Rothschild Boulevard, which is one of the swankiest boulevards in Israel. And so it was partially called the rent test protest. But one of the issues that emerged at the time was the incredibly high cost of cottage cheese, partially because of some of the carryovers from the um, old dairy monopolies. And so it became a quality of life protest. But again, what was so interesting about it was that these people who were very much from the left had a very strong patriotic and Zionist streak. They understood that the best way to protest, the best way for the left to affect change is not to demean their country, not to betray their country, not to abandon their country, but to say, I love my country so much, I want to make it better. That's constructive liberal Zionism. That's constructive liberalism. And that's a kind of centrism that sometimes is missing both from the harsh critical right these days and the harsh critical left these days, both in Israel and in the United States. Which brings me to the elephant in the room. And that is what is going on in Israel today, the coalition, the responses to the coalition, the responses to the responses, the critique of the responses. Your work has the potential to create... I'm going to use a classic term, a chizuk emunah, a strengthening of faith in this enterprise, which we need so desperately. Can you help us in Herzlian terms or just Trojan terms, Gilroy himself, can you help us get back to the, the basic sense of why should, in particular, our kids' generation, our kids are probably at the same age, why should they invest emotionally, personally, and perhaps even financially in Israel? What is it that you've learned that can bring us back from the abyss of despair over Smotrich and Ben Gavir and other radical right-wing manifestations of Israeli identity today? Governments, especially in a parliamentary system and a somewhat volatile parliamentary system like Israel, are speedboats. But the ship of state is a stately ocean liner. I can't afford, and my kids can't afford, and people like you can't afford to give up on Israel because it's too big. It's not too big to fail, but it's too big. It would leave too big a hole in our hearts. It would be live too big a hole in our identities. And our love of Israel should never be probationary. Like our love of home isn't probationary. And Israel is so much a part of our identity. It's so much a part of our heritage. And now it is still the most exciting, most adventuresome, collective adventure of the Jewish people in the world today. How can we turn away from it? How can we give up on it? Just because 4,000 votes here and there went the wrong way? So part of it starts with an understanding that we need Israel as much as Israel needs us. 
those of us who live in Israel and those of us who don't live in Israel understand that there's no more centering device, anchoring device. And we see it with birthright. We see how many students who've been raised, unfortunately, by too many of their parents to be nothings, come to Israel and understand, wow, I'm a part of something. I don't just count in decades. I don't just count in centuries. I count in millennia. History isn't last week's YouTube video of some cat rolling around or some baby drooling, but it's the Maccabees and it's Golda Meir and it's Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion who also fought each other like cats and dogs. And we're part of this thing that transcends any particular moment. Israel is bigger than Smotrich. Israel is bigger than Ben-Gvir. Israel is bigger than the bigots of the moment. And we have to remember that. And this is right now this moment where we're celebrating the, what I'm calling the Ark of Zionist Triumph. 125 years since the Zionist Congress, 75 years since the uh, November 29th, uh, 1947. I don't call it the partition resolution. I call it the resolution acknowledging Jewish statehood. And 75 years soon since this establishment of the state of Israel. These are moments to say, wait a minute. This is a, an experiment in liberal, democratic, Jewish values. How do we make it better? But how do we not give up on it? And I'll say one more thing. Herzl reminds us of that because he gets us back to the fundamentals. And de Tocqueville reminds us of that. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great 19th century French traveler, comes to America and uses a beautiful expression called the habits of the heart. We have to be very careful not to read what's going on in Israel through red, white, and blue lenses or black and white lenses. For all the challenges going on in Israel right now, day to day, I speak to people from the far left and the far right and we're friends. Day to day, my son and daughter are serving the army with people from the far left and the far right, and they put their politics aside. Day to day, when you're invited to a wedding, you're very likely to see both secular Jews and Haredi Jews dancing together, singing together, celebrating together. It's not America. We don't have the big sort. We don't have enough room for the big sort. We don't have the great uncoupling. We don't have um, the, 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 the backwards uh, approach that we're seeing in places like Hungary and Poland. And my challenge, and with this I'll end, is to everyone who's giving up on Israel, first of all, to say, look what you're giving up for yourself. But more than that, pick any central issue and go back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. I'd much rather be an Israeli Arab who's building a middle class today rather than 20 years ago, 40 years ago, or 60 years ago when Israeli Arabs were under military rule. I'd rather be gay. I'd rather be a woman. I'd rather be Mizrahi. I'd rather be a white male. I'd rather be in this moment with all its challenges than any other moment in the previous 75 years and certainly any Jewish moment in the last 2,000 years. So do we have challenges? Yes. And am I fighting every day against the bigotry, against the ugliness? I actually just last, uh, just yesterday applied to be on the blacklists of the Noam party. I said, hey, wait a minute. I, if, if you're demonizing people who are, who are in favor of, of rights of others, in favor of embracing um, my LGBTQ friends, put me on that list too. So my love of Israel and my love of the good doesn't stop me from seeing the bad, but in fact forces me to double down, to cut down on the evil and make sure that we have the best Israel we can, it can be. But it doesn't come by approaching Israel in a probationary way. It doesn't come by only saying, oh, I'll only accept Israel if it's exactly like my vision of an America that even doesn't exist. It has to be by rolling up our sleeves and taking that leap of hope. Tomorrow will be better than today. And by working together, we will make it happen. It's an amazing note upon which to end. I think of the Canadian Jewish poet A.M. Klein who was a profound influence personally and in a literary sense on the late Canadian singer-songwriter-poet Leonard Cohen, who in one of his poems said that generations peer through my eyes. Hmm. And I've always believed that this is true, that we Jews live in a very crowded skull space, and that the generations are looking through our eyes. I'm going to reiterate what you said about the current government and about how Israel is bigger than that. And we'll end pretty shortly after this, but I want to say this. I have any number of friends and colleagues who basically have said to me, and this is depressing, 
I'm done. And I said to them, my love for Israel and the Jewish people is much larger than my disdain for Smotrich and Ben Gavir. In fact, in a rather pugnacious, belligerent way that Pat Moynihan, Allah Shalom, would have understood, I want to say, if I have to fight them for my love of Zion, they're not going to win. <laughs> my love of Zion is larger than my disdain for them. You, in your body of work, whether it's the Zionist ideas, your amazing book, Moynihan's Moment, whether it's in this new, beautiful, voluminous collection of Theodore Herzl's writings, you have taught us really, Gil, and you continue to teach us what is at stake. And there is too much at stake for us to abandon this with any lightness of spirit and triviality of being. This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This has been Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, the podcast, I invite you to follow us on religionnews.com, my regular blog of the same name, Martini Judaism. Our friend, our guest has been Gil Troy, author of the Zionist writings of Theodore Herzl. Gil, it's been great to have you here. Thank you so much for all that you do. And as always, a delightful spending time with you. Thank you. And for you, and I promise you, uh, come July, it's not even next year in Jerusalem, it's this year in Jerusalem. We've got that lunch set up uh, at that wonderful place on Emek Rafayim in Jerusalem as together we lift a glass to Israel's 75th birthday. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We got production assistance from Elizabeth Windham. Elsie Owen keeps our engines running smoothly. And Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again soon. And shalom. Shalom.